Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths that have already been sung. We thank you for the fellowship that's already been enjoyed and for uh, the, the glory that you've already been given. But Lord, we ask for more, that you would continue to reveal your truth and exalt your name and your glory in our midst, minister to our hearts and unite us together in the fear of you, the worship of you, and the joy that comes as we hope in your gospel. Pray that you'd give us understanding hearts that are eager to receive your truth and give us a tender conscience that is quick to respond to the conviction of the Spirit. And Lord, empower us by your Spirit to go from here uh, resolved to obey and to give you glory with our whole life. We pray all this in the name of our Savior and King, Jesus. Amen. Amen. The book of Jonah begins with these words, Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As the curtain rises, we take in this first scene, and we are introduced to the two main characters of this story. The two main characters, if you're paying attention, are number one, the Lord, and then number two, Jonah. We're not only introduced to the two main characters here in the opening verses, but we're also introduced to the central point of the plot line, that God's plan is to send this man Jonah to preach to a pagan people, the city of Nineveh, because of their great evil. And that's how the scene opens. But let me ask you, what what do you know about this little book? When I mentioned Jonah, some of you probably had thoughts that immediately came into your mind. Perhaps some of you are aware that this man Jonah is often known as the rebellious prophet. As we'll see in the next several weeks, instead of obeying this command to go to Nineveh, Jonah will run the opposite direction. He'll get into a major storm at sea, he'll end up in the water, and lo and behold, he will be swallowed whole by what the text calls a great fish. And many of you are likely familiar with that notable detail. Maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe you haven't read the Bible necessarily, but you've probably seen or heard about this story in some sense. Maybe you've seen it in a coloring book, or maybe you had the little refrigerator magnets that go on the front, you know, for the little kids to play with. It has a whale and a Jonah, or maybe the bath toys, you know, Jonah and the whale. We're all familiar, most likely, with at least this detail of Jonah and the whale, as it's often called. But what else do you know about this man? What else do you know about This book that bears his name, Jonah. Do you know what this book Jonah aims to teach us? Do you know why it's in the Bible? Because the story of Jonah is not just a children's story. The book of Jonah is a valuable and important part of the Old Testament biblical literature, and it has much to teach us. And not just if you're under the age of eight. We're going to take several weeks to walk through this little book. It's only four chapters long because I want to examine the amazing story that this book tells us and consider how God might desire to speak to you and me today through this timeless tale. So the aim of our time in the Word together this morning is to introduce us to the book of Jonah. I want to set the stage and introduce the main characters and point out the key themes that this story has to teach us so that as we move through the story, you'll be able to look for these important details along the way because there is a lot more to this book than just a man getting swallowed 
by some massive sea creature. This little book is packed with theology. And this little book is intended to penetrate our hearts. In studying the book of Jonah, there's one very important question that we have to address up front. Before we actually dive into the details, we need to address what is for some a glaring issue. Is this for real? Like, did this actually happen? The events contained on this page, you know, a storm that stops instantly, a, a man getting swallowed by this marine creature and staying alive for three days and then getting spit up on the shore, a plant that grows up overnight and a pagan wicked city that repents in a day. Is this a literal historical event or is, is this some sort of legend? Because it sounds to some like this could be maybe a fairy tale with a moral, like one of Aesop's fables perhaps. But for those of us who have a big view of God and have a high view of Scripture, there's really no problem in taking this text as it is presented, as literal, historical, a series of events that actually happened in a real place with people who had real names and lived real lives. I'd like to share with you a few reasons why I believe we ought to take the, jo the book of Jonah at face value as a story that really happened. First of all, the text itself is presented as historical. I already read for you uh, verse 1 and verse 2. The book of Jonah starts with this introductory formula. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and that includes the content of what God told him. And that same formula is found many other places in Scripture. This is very similar to the book of Micah, the book of Hosea, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel. There's nothing in the introduction of this book that hints to us or signals to us that this is a parable or a myth that has a meaning. It's introduced as historical the same way many other books are. In addition, the components of the story are historical. The geography of Jonah is real. Cities like Nineveh and Joppa and Tarshish. There's nothing in, in the presentation here that would, that would suggest that the individuals named are not real. Jonah, who's mentioned, as we'll see later, in 2 Kings. The Ninevites, this is a real city, historical city. So there's nothing in the presentation of the text that would suggest it's a parable or that it's symbolic. But secondly, the book of Jonah is also treated as historical by the rest of Scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus himself refers to the book of Jonah and affirms its historicity. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus' resurrection is not a myth or a parable, and neither is the story of Jonah. In Luke chapter 11, verse 32, Jesus says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says that the residents of Nineveh who really experienced these things are going to testify in the judgment. It's historical. It really happened. Why do people have such a hard time taking it this way? Well, I'd say because of the miracles. Like we mentioned, the big fish and the storm and the plant that grows up overnight. And some would even say the likelihood of a pagan city like Nineveh repenting wholeheartedly in a day. So people have a hard time with that. Um, 
But that does not pose a problem for those of us, once again, who believe that God is there and that he is all-powerful and who believe that God's word is true. Keep in mind that the miracles presented in this book that some would say make this book a myth and a parable, that there's also great miracles in other historical books of the Bible. Go read the historical book of Exodus that recalls for us all these events and real people and real places, and you'll find that it's chock full of miracles. The plagues of Egypt, the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, and a pillar of fire that leads God's people through the wilderness. That's history. It's not presented as a myth or a parable. What about if you go to the book of 1 Kings and you meet a prophet named Elijah? Elijah prays to the God of heaven and he sends fire down to consume the sacrifices on the altar. A supernatural event. These are historical books as well that include miracles that are just as shocking and supernatural as the miracles we find in Jonah. So if you start saying that anything with miracles like this must not be history, you're going to have a problem with a lot more than just the book of Jonah. You're going to have problems in nearly every book of the Bible. In fact, it's not just the Old Testament. If you have a problem with storms and big fish, wait till you get to the resurrection and you find an empty tomb and a resurrected Christ. So I agree with what Old Testament scholar Charles Feinberg says. He writes, if we exclude the miraculous from our Bibles, how much of it do we have left? And more important, what kind of God do we have left? I think his question is weighty. It's a rhetorical question. It says you won't have much of the Bible left, and the God you end up with will be very small if you start taking that approach to Scripture. It's interesting because of the reasons we've mentioned, traditionally throughout the history of the church, throughout the last several thousand years, Jonah has always been understood to be historical by biblical, biblical scholars. It was taken as literal up until the 19th century. It was not until modern skepticism crept in that people began to claim that this never really happened. It's just a story with a moral. Only modern scholars protest its historicity. But if you will lay aside an anti-supernatural bias. It makes the most sense to read the book of Jonah as something that really happened, as historical. So we're going to take that approach throughout our series through the book of Jonah. My understanding is that the book of Jonah is something that we could call, here's your big word for today, $5 word, didactic history. What does that mean? History means it's real people, real events, it's literal. Didactic means that there is a point to this history. It's not history for history's sake. It's not just the gathering of information to record what happened. The author wants to teach us something. That's what the word didactic means. And so because of that, he's organized the story in a certain way. All the unnecessary details have been stripped away. We don't get the names of the sailors, for instance, or where they were from. We don't get even the name of the king of Nineveh because it's incidental to the point that the author's trying to make. He strips away all the unnecessary details so the message can shine through. He's carefully arranged the telling of this story in order to highlight for us truth and to challenge us as the readers. His aim in telling this story is not to entertain. His aim is to instruct. So we need to read it that way and understand it that way. It is didactic history. So with those things in mind... What do we need to know in order to fully grasp the meaning of Jonah, in order to benefit from the message it teaches us? I'd like to take the remainder of our time to to sort of set the stage so that we can understand the context. 
you can imagine, imagine this being a play, we're going to get the lighting just right. We're going to set up the backdrop and all of the props so that when the main characters walk out to center stage, we can understand everything in its proper context. So first of all, we need to know who the main characters are. We mentioned this earlier, but the, the main characters are the Lord and Jonah. Jonah starts with the word of the Lord that came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The word Lord there in your Bibles should be all capital letters, L-O-R-D, which means it's a translation of the Hebrew name, Yahweh. It's the, the personal covenant name of God, the covenant God of Israel. He is, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is the one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, the God who had called Abraham previously and made great promises to him. He is the ruler of the nations, Yahweh, the one true God. And throughout this book, if you study it, if you pay attention to it, you'll see that we are given a portrait of God. God is actually the main character. Jonah is mentioned frequently, but it's really about God. The story that will follow will show us, first of all, the power of God. His power will be seen as not limited by distance or space. Jonah tries to run. He tries to get away from the presence of the Lord. But as we'll see, that is a foolish endeavor. You can't do it. You cannot go away from the presence of God. God is present everywhere. And we will see his power over nature as God hurls a great storm onto the sea. We'll see God's great power over nature as he appoints and prepares this great fish to come and swallow Jonah and then tells the fish exactly where to spit him out and when to spit him out. We'll see God's sovereign power over nature when it comes to the weather and the plant and the worm or the caterpillar that we find in chapter 4. And we even see God's sovereign power over human hearts as Nineveh repents and lays aside their sin. So that is something of God's nature that you and I are meant to see and behold as we study the story of Jonah. We're supposed to get a picture of a big God who is everywhere and who has all power over all things that he has created. That's a truth to be understood and to be believed. But Jonah shows us something more than just God's power. And this really gets at the center of the message of Jonah. It's not just God's power that is put on display, but it is also God's heart. The heart of God is displayed in the story of Jonah. It, Jonah reveals God's mercy and God's grace and God's patience and God's compassion. The book opens with a command to go and preach a warning that offers mercy to a wicked city. That's the kind of God our God is. It shows us a God who shows mercy on pagan sailors. And when Jonah's thrown in the ocean... God gives them peace and calm and spares their lives in chapter 1. We find a God who shows mercy in chapter 2 on a disobedient prophet. A prophet who rebelled against him and did the exact opposite of what God had told him to do. Yet, God shows Jonah mercy. In chapter 3, it records how Nineveh repented and God turned his wrath away from the wicked city and showed them mercy. In chapter 4, we find a God who patiently works with Jonah. He teaches him. He instructs him. He doesn't cast him off because Jonah's heart is in the wrong place and his attitude is all wrong. And the book of Jonah ends with a stunning rhetorical question in chapter 4 that reveals his pity on those who are lost. The book ends with this rhetorical question. He says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. A God who has compassion even on the livestock is the God that is portrayed in Jonah. And really, I think God's mercy on this rebellious prophet, more than his mercy on the sailors or even the Ninevites, I think it's God's mercy on Jonah that's even more stunning, more gripping, more shocking than a giant fish swallowing this man and spitting him back up. God is so patient to pursue and discipline and teach Jonah over the course of these four chapters when he had every right to crush him, every right to judge him and to punish him for his rebellion and his unbelief and his hard heart. This is who our God is. And friends, if we are going to know God, then we must know his greatness and his power, yes, but we also must know his heart. God really is the main character of this book. But there's a second important character, important because of his role, because Jonah is a man also whose heart is held up like God's. So you have God and you have Jonah. And in contrast to God, Jonah is held up in, in contrast. It's shown that his heart is different than God's heart. And we see them contrasted together. And we also see that Jonah's will is shown to be in conflict with God's will. So you have Jonah versus God, almost, in this book. So you ask the question, who is this guy, Jonah? Well, Jonah was a prophet in, the northern, uh, in northern Israel during the time of the divided kingdom. This is before the exile. To give you just a little bit of history, if you remember the most famous king of Israel, King David. He was the second king in Israel. He had a son named Solomon. Solomon took Israel to its greatest period of success and power and influence and peace. But during the time of Solomon's son, the nation of Israel fractured. There was civil war, and the nation split into two. The ten tribes in the north kept the, the title of Israel, and the two tribes in the south, where Jerusalem was, were known as Judah. So that's the period of the divided kingdom. You had two different monarchies, two different kingdoms, two different thrones, even though the people shared the same heritage and the same language and the same culture, we had this divided kingdom. And eventually, both of these kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, would be conquered by invading armies. And both of these kingdoms would be taken away into captivity because of their idolatry. That's known as the exile. So that's, that's sort of the historical landscape. Jonah, to put this in context, served in the northern kingdom, in the, 12, in the ten tribes of Israel, before they were taken away, before they were conquered, before they were taken into exile. He ministered during the reign of a man named Jeroboam II. This was in the 8th century before Christ. You can turn to 2 Kings chapter 14 if you'd like, because we actually find Jonah mentioned in 2 Kings 14. A historical book. Again, this is why we believe Jonah was a real person. And he did real things and said real words and had real experiences. 2 Kings chapter 14. And if you look in verse 23, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern ten tribes. They didn't have Jerusalem, so they made their own new capital there in Samaria. And it says that Jeroboam reigned 41 years. That was unusually long. Usually these kings in the north were so wicked, there was always assassinations and death, and it was like an HBO special in Israel often. 
But Jeroboam reigned for 41 years. And it says, verse 24, that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, which was a common occurrence in the northern ten tribes. It says, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So he pretty much kept things going as usual. He restored, but it says in verse 25 that some good things happened, even though that his, his spiritual legacy was disastrous. Jeroboam II was very successful politically. You see this in verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's our guy, Jonah, right there. The prophet, who was from Gath Heper. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So in 2 Kings chapter 14, we find Jonah mentioned. Because of Jeroboam, and other kings like him. Israel was on a collision course with God's judgment. They were, going to be, uh, they were going to be conquered. They were going to be taken away. But even though Jeroboam's reign was, like we said, spiritually disastrous, he was politically successful because of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise. He said, I'm not going to wipe them out completely. I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham to bless these people, even though they don't deserve it. And so Jonah had the privilege of being the bearer of good news during that time. It says that the borders were expanded according to the word that was spoken through Jonah. Jonah got to be the guy wearing the Make Israel Great Again hat. He got to be the one who said, listen, God is going to restore our borders. He's going to expand our Israel. We are, we're on the up, up and up, and we're going to increase in our power and peace and prosperity. Wouldn't you like to be the bearer of good news? So that's, that's some of Jonah, how Jonah was used during that time, during the time of Jeroboam. So to jump back into this little book titled Jonah, this prophetic book, why did Jonah have such a hard time going to Nineveh? Well, if we understand everything that's been going on to this point, it will help us. We need to understand what's going on in Jonah's world. So we know who Jonah is now, but what was going on in Jonah's world? Well, like we mentioned earlier, the plot of Jonah revolves around the ancient city of Nineveh. So a little bit of geography, Nineveh was a city to the north and the east of Jerusalem. It was on a fertile plain bordering the Tigris River. If you were, go, were to go today to the Middle East and you were to go to the city of Mosul in Iraq, that's where Nineveh was, right there in that area. Nineveh was first built by a man named Nimrod, who's mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 10. If you've read Genesis, you know that this guy Nimrod... It's a good name for your dog, but probably not for your kids, by the way. Nimrod. I've always liked that name. Um, but Nimrod was known for his pride and known for his violence and his cruelty. Uh, and he bragged about it. And the city Nineveh that he built would carry on his legacy. It had the same characteristics as its founder. The city of Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So it's an important city because it was the capital of this nation, the Assyrians. They were a fierce nation. And the Assyrians would eventually grow to establish an empire, an empire that controlled the entire area there in the Middle East. It spanned from Turkey in the north to modern-day Iran in the west and all the way down to Egypt in the south. So they were the, the world power for a time. And they were noted for their cruelty 
and noted for their brutality. They were ruthless. It's reported that when they would capture a city, they would murder and torture its inhabitants, even though they had already won, even though they already had everything under control. And they would celebrate and flaunt their acts of barbaric violence. I debated on whether or not to give you some examples. But because of some of the young kids in the room, I don't even want to mention some of the things that they would do when they conquered a people. They were infamous. Their sense of morality had become twisted and depraved. And because of their violence and their cruelty, they were hated and they were feared. That's exactly the reaction they wanted to get, by the way, by doing all these things when they would invade and conquer Uh, a lesser people. But on their way to world dominance, as they were building this empire, they, they faced some setbacks along the way. And in the time of Jonah, the Assyrians had not yet reached their peak. So they hadn't yet established their empire uh, in its full strength. In fact, though they had been growing, during Jonah's day, they were in a decline of sorts, a little bump in the road. They'd been growing in power and momentum for a time and enjoying some military success But then they had a transition in leadership, and that's always an opportunity for things to get shaky, isn't it? So their leader was gone, and during that time of transition, there was political unrest and intrigue. There was a transition in leadership that destabilized the nation, and things started sort of coming apart at the seams. Various cities started ruling themselves. So think about the states of the United States breaking away and no longer being joined together. That's sort of what what was going on with the Assyrians. And the centralized government then was becoming pretty shaky. And that was good news for all of their neighbors. They said, yeah, we'd love to see Assyria crash and burn because then maybe they'll leave us alone. This political unrest was followed, what's more, by a plague. So they were sick and dying. This disease was ravaging the Assyrians. And then there was a solar eclipse that happened. And keep in mind, these are idol worshipers. They were pagans who were very superstitious. And they likely would have taken this solar eclipse as a bad omen. That's bad luck. That must mean the gods are unhappy with us. Our power is crumbling. We're all getting sick and dying. The sun is being darkened. The gods must be angry with us. That's probably what was going on in the Assyrians' mind because everything was starting to sort of you know, come apart at the seams for them, and it wasn't, wasn't going as well for them as it had been previously. And all of this would have made them perhaps ripe to hear a message calling them to repent telling them that there was a God who was angry with them and that they needed to change their ways. But this is something Jonah didn't want to see happen. He wanted to see them crumble. He didn't want to see them recover. He wanted to see God's wrath poured out. He wanted to see the Ninevites and the Assyrians completely wiped out. That would have made his day. And so you can understand a little bit now why he would have not been happy about taking a message of mercy to Israel's enemies. Especially since Jonah knew, as a prophet, as someone who had read the scriptures, that these specific people were destined to one day conquer Israel itself. His contemporary Hosea, another prophet, who lived and ministered during the same time as Jonah, wrote this. Hosea 9 verse 3. It says, They, speaking of Israel, shall not remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim, that's another title for Israel, shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Hosea said that the children of Israel, the northern ten tribes, would be taken into exile in Assyria. In Hosea 11.5, it says, Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. So Jonah knew that these people were destined to one day conquer his nation 
And as that guy who's wearing the Make Israel Great Again hat, that's not something he wanted to see happen. As we'll see later in the story, Jonah would eventually go. And they did eventually repent of their wickedness. And God delayed his judgment on the Assyrians. One generation turned from sin and turned to the Lord. But that spiritual awakening would prove to be temporary. Later generations of Assyrians would pick up their old ways once again. And as they rose to power, Assyria would be used by God to judge unfaithful Israel. They would conquer the northern ten tribes and destroy Samaria. They destroyed the capital city. And they deported the entire population. But eventually, Assyria itself would be judged by God. They would be crushed by the Medes and the, and the Babylonians in 612 BC. And this was prophesied by Nahum many years after Jonah. Nahum 3.1 says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. In verse 5, he says, God speaks against Nineveh, says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. He says, I'm going to humiliate you, Nineveh. He says, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. In verse 19, God says to Nineveh, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? God says, Nineveh, I'm going to crush you and destroy you, and everyone around is going to celebrate. So that's going to come in the future. Rewind a little bit. Jonah wants to get to that point today. He doesn't want to see God delay that judgment. You might ask, okay, J.D., you're telling us a lot of history here, and I'm trying to stay awake, and the coffee's starting to wear off. Why do we need to know so much about the Assyrian Empire? Well, keep in mind that Jonah had preached a positive pro-Israel message of blessing back in 2 Kings. He's a patriotic prophet. Make Israel great again. But Jonah has a hard time following through with this second commission, to go preach, not a message of good news for Israel, but a message of hope and mercy for Israel's enemies. We need to understand why it was so hard for Jonah to go to Nineveh. Fear and hatred form a powerful mix that when it's lodged in our hearts, it is hard to overcome. For Jonah to go to Nineveh would be like telling someone to go be a missionary to the soldiers of ISIS. It's not just that they were Gentiles. Often Jonah is painted as a racist, and I don't think that's really the case. I don't think this is primarily about racism. I think it's that these people were enemies of Israel, that they were perpetrators of much violence, and Jonah wanted justice. Jonah wanted God's judgment to be rightly poured out, and he wanted to see it happen on these people. He wanted to watch them burn. And he knew that God was merciful, and he didn't want God to show mercy. So as we read through the book of Jonah, it will be helpful, of us, helpful for us to keep in mind what was going on in Jonah's world. Because then as we see the conflict between Jonah and God, as we see the dialogue between them, it'll make sense to us. And we'll be able to learn the things that we need to learn. And so that raises the question, what is it that we're supposed to learn? Well, here's the theme of the book. Here's the main message. I'm going to let you know up front so that we can keep it in view as we walk through the story. The central theme of the book is found in chapter 2, verse 9. You can turn the page and see it for yourself. In chapter 2, as Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, 
he concludes his psalm with this phrase at the end of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the central point, the main theme of Jonah. And it's a statement, first of all, of God's power. When Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord, he's saying God is able to save. Salvation doesn't belong to anyone else. God is able. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This power to save will be illustrated throughout the book. God is able to save from the storm. God is able to save from the fish. God is able to save the Ninevites from, from, from impending doom. And God is even able to, to give Jonah relief from the beating sun as he gives him shade. God is the one who is able to save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But again, it's not just about God's power. This is also about God's heart. When Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord, he's saying not only that God is able to save, but get this, this is so important. God desires to save. God desires to save. God's patience and mercy and grace is expressed all throughout this story to Jonah, to the sailors, to the Ninevites, and ultimately to us as well. Because God wants to reveal his grace and mercy and compassion to us so that we will receive it and so that we will help to extend it to the world. You see, when Jonah says salvation belongs to the world, this is a truth that is meant to be understood. So we need to think rightly about this statement. But this is also a truth that must be embraced and reflected by God's people. The contrast and the conflict between God and Jonah is the real problem in, in this book. And it's the problem that needs to be solved. And in chapter 4, we will see that, that God was not satisfied with Jonah's external obedience. Jonah did eventually go and preach, but that wasn't what God was ultimately after. He wanted his prophet to share his heart. So Jonah did the right thing on the outside. Okay, I'll jump through the hoops. I'll say what you want me to say. Yay, all the people got saved. But Jonah was unhappy, and that meant God was unhappy. God wanted his heart to change. God's heart is for the nations, and Jonah's needed to be too. The implication for us is that if God loves and delights in mercy, then so should we. So should we. It ought to be reflected in our heart and in our obedient actions. God performed these actions and inspired the writing of this book because Israel needed to see that God's heart was for the nations, not just for them. They loved God's promise to Abraham. They loved the promise that God would bless him and bless his descendants, but they often forgot the last part of God's promise to Abraham, that through him, all the nations of the earth would experience God's blessing. You see, they liked the first two parts. They didn't really like that last part. And God wanted to instruct them, to challenge them, to say, listen, your heart needs to be in line with mine. But Israel also needed to see, I think, an example of repentance. They needed to see proof that God was willing to delay judgment if they would repent. Because remember, Israel is a mess right now. They're worshiping idols, and they also are headed for judgment and destruction. All the other prophets, if you read them, are taking Israel to task, con convicting them, rebuking them, warning them calling wayward Israel to turn from their idolatry or else face judgment. What a great example in this book of real repentance that leads to real mercy. And as, the, as Israel would have heard this story, they would have known if we repent, we too, perhaps, can be spared. 
You know, it might have been tempting for them to hear all the other prophets preaching against their sin and warning them of judgment, and they might have started to get the wrong idea about their God, that he was impossible to please, that he was demanding and harsh and angry, and that they were without hope. But in Jonah, they are reminded that God is patient, merciful, gracious, and that he's eager to save. And friends, these are lessons we need to hear as well. We need to know who our God is, and Jonah helps us with that. And we need to know what our God is like. And we need to be reminded of his power and his purposes, of his compassion and mercy and patience. And we need to look in the mirror. When we look at Jonah and see his resistance to God's will and his resentment of God's purposes, we need to look in the mirror and examine our own hearts to examine whether or not our heart is submissive to God's will and whether or not our heart echoes the same compassion and mercy and grace that God desires to show to the world. You see, in a church like ours where doctrine is highly valued, we must not think that we're okay, we're doing good because we know what is true. Jonah actually has perfect doctrine. He gets it exactly right. He knows that God is powerful and he knows that God is merciful But the reality is he doesn't like that. God doesn't ever correct Jonah's doctrine. Jonah gets who God is. He's just not okay with it. He's not okay with it at all. Perhaps some of you can relate. There's things that you know to be true about God. You actually have correct doctrine on paper. And you know what he's like. The problem is that you don't like some of the things you know about God. Some of those things frustrate you. Or... Or, uh, or, or confuse you or cause you to feel resentment rather than, than embracing those truths about God and allowing him to press your heart into the mold that, that fits his image to allow him to make us like Jesus Christ, his son, who delights perfectly in all of the Father's perfections. I think a lot of us might have accurate doctrine but that doesn't mean our heart's in the right place, that our heart is in tune with God's, and that's why we need the book of Jonah. We need to submit to the God that we claim to know. We need to allow him to continue that process of conforming us to the image of Christ so that we will look at our city and our coworkers and our neighbors and our nation and our world through the lens of the cross, the lens of God's mercy and God's desire to save and his ability and power to save and his purpose to save. You know, we haven't really talked this morning about who wrote this book, but I believe that Jonah himself is the author. Who else could have known all these details? Who else could have known all the things that happened when no one else was around? If Jonah didn't write it, then someone else wrote down the story that Jonah told them. And if that's the case, if Jonah is the source for this book, then Jonah shows us a man who eventually grew to be humble, a man who learned his lesson, who, who got the, the things that God was trying to teach him, who grasped those things, a man who changed. And he wrote these things down because he wanted us to learn those same lessons. And he wanted us to experience the same change, the same transformation that he went through. And he's even willing to share with us all of his ugly failures all the foolish things he said and did in the process of God teaching him these things. Friends, our greatest need at all times, whether you're five years old or 85 years old, our greatest need at all times is to behold our God, 
to know who he is and what he's like and to submit to him and allow him to change us so that we reflect his glory. So as we go through the book of Jonah over the next few weeks, let's pray for a greater understanding of our God. And let's pray that our understanding of who he is would be matched by a delight in his will and in his ways so that what we know about God doctrinally brings us joy so that it inspires obedience so that it compels us to act in a way that reflects his glory and displays his perfections. Let's pray for a humble realization of where perhaps we need to change and how we need to grow. Let's pray for a willingness to learn the lessons God wants to teach us to repent and to change so that God's purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ will become more and more a reality each day as we read through his word. Let's pray together to that end. God, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for the rich truths that it teaches us. And we thank you for the painful lesson that it aims to teach us the way it exposes our hearts, exposes the fact that though our minds may grasp truth, sometimes our hearts have not fully received everything that you have to show us. Sometimes our hearts are not in tune with your will. Sometimes there are things about you that we do not worship you for and delight in and celebrate. There's things that, that perhaps we resist. I pray, God, that you would bring our minds and our hearts into conformity with your truth, with your will, so that we would delight in your affection, so that we would not just understand you, but so that we would love you, and that we would seek to imitate you, as Ephesians 5 tells us, to be imitators of our God as beloved children. So, Lord, I pray that as we go through this series, that you would instruct us, give us a right view of you, an accurate view of ourselves, Give us a willingness to grow and change as you see fit. We pray all this in the name of our merciful and powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.